Open your Bibles to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. There's, the Bible contains the books 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Uh, in the Hebrew, there, in, there was one book of Kings. We've split it into two just to kind of make it easier for us to reference. And as we study First uh, and Second Kings, uh, we're going to see some amazing things. We're going to see the death of King David uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. We're going to see the reign of King Solomon. We're going to see a division take place in the nation Israel. The ten northern tribes will break off and become Israel. The two southern tribes will become Judah. We're going to see two different captivities. The northern tribes will be taken into the Assyrian captivity. The southern tribes will be taken into the Babylonian captivity. We're going to see good and bad leaders. We're going to see some good kings and some, some bad kings. We're going to see some great prophets. We're going to see Elijah and Elisha. A lot of good stuff coming up in here. Uh, probably the, I don't know if, maybe sad is not the right word. Probably the, the, what we're going to see, that, what you're going to see overall is you're going to see a nation that's going to begin in glory, but it's going to end in ruin. The nation of Israel, as we come into the book of 1 Kings, they're in their glory. They're, it is a great nation. And by the time we get to the end of 2 Kings, it's going to be in ruins for, because of their failure to follow God. And uh, we will see that take place. David has been uh, on the throne now. Um, he's getting older. Just to give you an idea of time frame, this is a thousand years before the time of Christ. So David was, was ruling and reigning about a thousand years before the time of Christ, just to kind of give you a perspective on where we're at here. Uh, the book, First and Second Kings, who were they written by? Well, we really don't know. Some people speculate Jeremiah the prophet wrote them. Ultimately, we believe that God wrote them. Whoever wrote them down and penned them, we believe they were, as, as we studied in 2 Timothy, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we have them. Uh, they're, they're, they're accurate historically. We know that from, from, uh, from Jewish history. There's no, no question there, no doubt there. And as I think as we study them, we're going to see, just like we have in, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we're going to see so many parallels to our own life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. I think you'll really enjoy it. All right. Let's get into it. First Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Previously, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, we saw David in battle against the Philistines. Remember that? He was doing battle against the Philistine giants, and he needed help. Abishai came alongside of him and had to actually slay the giant that was coming after him. And the nation of Israel said, you know what, David? We're not going to let you go out to battle anymore. You're getting too old. You know, you're, you're too important to us as a leader to be out here on the lines fighting with us anymore. By, he, they, they actually said it this way. They said, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So they came to David and said, David, we recognize you're getting older. And here as we come along, David is about 70 years old at this point. And you say, well, that's not that old. I mean, Moses was 80 when he started his ministry. Well, David has lived a rough life. He's been a warrior. He's been a, he's been a man who's done battle. And we're not talking about, you know, flying a plane. We're talking about hand-to-hand -hand combat. We're talking about carrying a sword and a shield and battling his whole life. And as he comes to 70 years old, it would seem that his circulation's poor. He's having trouble getting warm. He couldn't get warm. He's shivering all the time. And then in verse 2, therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord the king. Let her stand before the king and let her care for him. Let her lie in your bosom that our Lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. And they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and they brought her to the king. And the young woman was very lovely. And she cared for the king and served him. But the king did not know her. This is one of those things in the Bible that make you scratch your head. And you go, what? I, that, come on. So they find a young girl. She's attractive. They're going to put him in bed with her. What's going on here? Listen, don't think that way. Keep in mind that their culture was very different than ours. 
Their culture was very, very different. This was not a sexual thing with David. This wasn't another wife. It wasn't in that sense. But what, what it was taking place, it was actually a medical thing. It was a medical thing that King David was dealing with. As a matter of fact, according to the ancient physician Galen, who lived during the third century, this practice, it was common, it was therapeutic, and it went on all the way through up into the Middle Ages. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, actually records this incident, and he mentions in his writings the antiquities of the Jews, and he says that it was a medical treatment as well. And when, when, we, when we read in his servants, he actually refers to it as his physicians. That's how Joseph, his doctors did this. It was a prescription from a doctor. So what we see taking place is David's health is failing. He obviously has a circulation problem. That's what we can guess by him being cold all the time. So they say, hey, we're going we're gonna to bring a, a, a young woman in the bed with him and, and to take care of him and to meet his needs. And it's not sexually, it's just keeping him warm. They didn't have electricity. They couldn't put on an electric blanket. They couldn't turn the heat down in the house. They couldn't build a fire in the middle of the room. They, you know, they, had, to, they had to improvise. They had to cuddle up. That's how they, that's how they were going to try to keep him warm. Now, with David's health failing, and he's obviously coming to the end of his life, there looms the obvious question. What's the question? Who's going to take over the nation after David? Who's going to be next? Who's going to be the next king of Israel? Well, I want you to know something before we kind of get into this study, that that had already been determined. You see, previously, David had told the nation Israel that Solomon, his son, would take his place. It's recorded for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read to you chapter 28, verses 5 and 7. He's, David is speaking to the nation Israel, and he says this, And all of my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now he said to me, if it is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever if he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day. So what David declares to the nation Israel, Solomon is established by God as the next king over Israel. God established David as king and God is now establishing Solomon as king. Now, the interesting thing is, with David getting old, all of the sons that he had, you can imagine, guess what's coming? A fight for the throne, right? No one's just going to sit back and let their brother take the throne. You can imagine there's going to be a, a problem there. But even with the Lord's wills known, even though David made it known, there's always going to pe be people who try to usurp the will of God. There's always going to be people who outwardly know God's will. I know what God's will is in this situation, but I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something my way. Listen, learn it up front. You can't fight against God and win. You can't beat God's will. You can't do it. You can try, you can run, but it'll ultimately catch up with you. Essentially, what we're going to see when you're fighting against God, it's a work of the flesh. It's a work of the flesh, not a work of the Lord. Now, let's look at verse 5. Then Adoniah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Who is this guy, Adoniah? Adoniah was David's fourth son. 2 Samuel chapter 3 tells us that. David's first son was Amnon. Remember Amnon? He, he's dead. What happened to Amnon? Well, he raped his sister Tamar and his brother, half-brother Absalom killed him. So he didn't make it. His second son is known, known as Chiliab. What happened to Chiliab? We don't know. There's no mention of Chiliab ever again in the scripture, so either he died young or he's unfit to be king for some reason. We don't know what happened to him. His third son was Absalom. Do you know what happened to Absalom? Absalom tried to rise up against David and take the kingdom from him, take the throne from David, and he too failed and was killed 
by Joab. David's fourth son is this guy, Adoniah. It's his fourth-born son. And he, by all practical purposes, would be the next likely in line. That's the way kingdoms, monarchies work, right? The oldest son is going to be first in line for the throne. Then you have second in line, third in line, fourth in line, fifth in line. You have all the way down somewhere. Anybody in royalty has some number assigned to them for the line of the throne, where they're going to be. But God doesn't follow those principles. God had already previously appointed and told David, who had told the nation Israel, that Solomon's going to be king. Now notice what Adoniah does. He exalts himself. He exalts himself. He wants to make himself king. He's exalting himself in direct conflict with the will of God. I'm going to be king. I'm going to be king. I can do this. Now, is exalting yourself ever a good thing? No. What's it going to lead to? Well, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 23, he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You get to choose. Do you want to humble yourself or do you want to exalt yourself? James chapter 4 verse 10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. Don't ever exalt yourself. Don't be the one to tell everybody how great you are. Don't be the one to tell everybody how good you are. Don't be the one that's, get off Facebook. Stop talking about yourself. Stop doing that. We need to be people who are exalting Christ. Exalt Christ in your life. Use the platforms that you have to exalt Jesus. Now let's see what happens to Adoniah. Then Adoniah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and with Abathar, the priest. And they followed and they helped Adoniah. But Zadok, the priest, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adoniah. And Adoniah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the stone of Zeholeth, which is in Enrogel. He also invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Adoniah exalts himself. He exalts himself. I want to be king. I don't care what God says. I want to be king. I don't care what God wants me to do in my life. God has another plan. I don't care. I want to be what I want to be. I'm going to make myself king. He exalts himself. And then we find out that he's doing what? He's preparing for himself. Listen, it's all about him, right? It's, not easy, to, it's easy to see. Who's it all about? It's, I exalted myself, and now I'm preparing for myself. Who's doing the work here? Adonijah's doing the work here. God's not doing the work. He prepares himself. For, what does he do? He gets chariots. He gets horsemen. He gets 50 men to run before him. That's like an entourage. You know, when the king would go out, the men would go before, heralding the king's coming. And he's creating his entourage. I want people to follow me. I want people to know who I am. I want to make a name for myself. We don't know anybody like that, do we? People, do people still do that kind of stuff today? Sure they do. Listen, it's a work of the flesh. But I want to show you something. Can we all agree that it's a work of the flesh? He's exalting himself in the flesh, but he's trying to make it look spiritual. Did you notice that he was sacrificing to the Lord? We're going to throw a party. We're going to get everybody together, and we're going to build an altar, and we're going to sacrifice to God. In the midst of exalting himself, he's trying to make it look spiritual. The work of the flesh cannot be made spiritual, but yet he's trying to make it look spiritual. Sacrificing the sheep and the oxen. 
He's, he's pretending as if God has ordained this. Well, God has already spoken. Maybe he's even convinced himself that God has ordained this. Oh, what a shame. What a shame. But it makes me wonder, how often in life do we do this exact same thing? Now, we might not want to be king, but how often in life do we decide that we're going to move in this certain direction, we're going to do this thing, and, and we're going to make it look spiritual in some way? It's really just our flesh pulling us somewhere or leading us somewhere, but we say things like, we're going to pray about it. And I believe God said to me, if anybody ever says to you, I believe God said to me, you need to tell them to go back and talk to him some more until they're done believing and they're sure of it. Or I think God said to me, or I think I'm being led. You need to be sure of what you're, what you're doing there. Before, if God, God's not going to make you wonder. He's going to confirm it for you if he's leading you in a direction. But he's trying to make this whole thing look spiritual. And I think that we have a tendency to do the same thing. I think that our lives sometimes if we can justify and rationalize and if we can put a spiritual twist on something or a spiritual spin on something, oh, it'll make us feel better about ourselves. Oh, it's, it's okay. It's, I'm doing it for the Lord. Well, the Lord didn't call you to do that. But it's a good thing. Yeah, but the Lord didn't call you. That's, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. But I want you to look at verse 6. This is kind of a knock on David. It says, and his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? Apparently, David wasn't a very good father. Apparently, he didn't have much interaction with his kids, and it came to raising Adoniah or his other sons. Apparently, he wasn't speaking into their life whatsoever. He was just letting them go. And here's what I find interesting. David didn't restrain the passions in his life, and neither did his kids. They learned it. Who did they learn it from? Where did Adonai learn this from? Where did Absalom learn this from? Where did they learn these things from? Learned it from their dad. They watched him. He's the king. He's the one I want to be like. Moms and dads, we need to take note. Take note that your children are watching you. And for those of you that aren't moms and dads or even have older kids, just note that your grandkids are watching you. There's people watching you. There's people watching you, especially when it comes to your kids. They're, they're watching to see how you act. It's find it interesting that if a parent or a mom or a dad has an anger problem, guess what the child might have? Probably likely going to have what? An anger problem. If the mom or dad have an addiction problem, it's oftentimes the children will follow in the same path. Why? That's what they learned. That's what was modeled to them. That's what they were taught. That's what, that's, that's what they were shown. Well, it's not an absolute, it's not certain. Listen, if the sin in your life as a parent is not dealt with, there's a good chance that you're going to see that sin magnified in the life of your children. That's what David saw. That's why his family life was such a disaster. He wasn't supposed to have more than one wife. He was forbidden as kings were not supposed to add wives to themselves. Back in Genesis, God said, let a father, let a man, bring a man and woman together. Let them cleave to one another. Become two, let the two flesh become one. There wasn't supposed to be multiple wives. And when he brought in multiple wives, guess what he brought in? Multiple problems. He brought it all in there. And here it's even recorded in Scripture that he never told them. He never kept them in check. He never disciplined his kids. He never told them, stop that. And it's even recorded there for us to see. If Jesus isn't a priority in your life, mom or dad, don't expect them to be a priority in your children's life. If the word of God is not a priority in your life, don't expect that to be a priority in their life because they're watching and they're learning from the people that they're with. Now notice who Adoniah aligned himself with. Joab. Now Joab. You guys remember Joab, right? Joab, what a character. You know, one moment you love him, the next moment you hate him. What we do know about Joab, he was very loyal to David. He was a military general. David had relieved him from power before, but he was loyal to him. But he was also very disobedient to David, wasn't he? 
Because he would do what he thought was right, whether David had, had, had allowed him to do it or not. David would give him an order, don't, do, don't, don't kill Absalom. And what did he do? He killed Absalom. Because he thought it was right for David. He, what, a, what a character. And now, do you think Joab is really, really behind Adonijah? Or do you think he's looking out for his best interest? He's probably looking out for his best interest in this. I've got to believe that's what's taking. When, when there's a work of the flesh, the people that are coming behind a work of the flesh, they're out there for themselves. That's, they're not out to serve the Lord. If they were, they wouldn't be out there. They would see that. And also, who does he put? Abathar, the high priest of Israel. Some of his brothers from Judah. But notice who he doesn't invite. Doesn't invite Zadok. Doesn't invite Nathan. I don't want Nathan there. Don't want Nathan there. I want it to look like a spiritual gathering. We're going to have an altar. We're going to have sacrifice. I don't want Nathan the prophet there. I don't want him around. Nathan was the guy who told David that his, intera- that his affair with Bathsheba was wrong. Remember the story he told him about the little lamb and told David that he was wrong with the affair. You're that man. You're that man, David. Why didn't he want Nathan around? Because Nathan was going to tell him the truth. This isn't God's will. God already spoke. You're not king. Solomon's going to be king. Isn't that how it goes when you're going against God's will? You don't want to be around the people of God. You might want to have a picture of spirituality, but the people of God? No, I don't want to hear what the pastor's going to tell me because I'm going to hear the pastor's going to open the Bible, give me biblical counsel, and tell me what I, what I really need to hear, but I don't want that, so I'm not going to go there. We'll just skip that today. I don't want to go to church and hear what he's going to say today or what God would have to tell. I just want to give me some friends that are going to tell me what I want to hear. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be. Adonijah wanted to make it look like it was from God, but he didn't want to hear from the true man of God. He didn't want Nathan at the party that he was throwing. David's other mighty men weren't invited. Who else wasn't invited? Solomon. <laughs> Solomon heard it too. He knew he was going to be the next king, right? He's not, he's not invited, of course. Bathsheba's not invited. Let's keep going and see how te- things turn out for Adonijah. How do you think this going to turn out for him when he goes against the Lord's will? Let's find out. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. Come, please, let me now give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, while you are still talking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. Notice a couple of things. Do you know who Bathsheba is? This is amazing to me. Her son Solomon is next in line to be king. Is that not a picture of God's grace and mercy? Remember who she was? She was the girl that David was on the rooftop when he should have been out to battle. He looks out over the city. He sees a girl bathing through her window, calls her to himself, has an affair with her. She's married to a guy named Uriah, who's one of David's mighty men. Uriah's off in battle. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Uh Uh-oh, now what are we going to do? Uriah knew it couldn't be his because he's off in battle. David calls Uriah home, tries to get him to go home to spend the night with his wife, expecting that maybe he'd think it was his kid. Uriah says, "Uh uh-uh, if my fellow men are out at battle, I'm not going home. I'm sleeping on the king's steps and slept there. The next night, David brought him in, got him drunk, hoping then he'd go home. But Uriah, being a mighty man of God, says, no, I'm not going home. If my fellow soldiers are out fighting, I'm staying on the steps of David. Uriah then sends him back to battle with a letter to Joab that says, basically, put him on the front lines, pull back, and go ahead and let him get killed up there. 
That's exactly what happens. You say, Rob, why, what, what does that have to do? Bathsheba is now in the line of Christ. The son that they bore would die, but they, she would go on to bear Solomon. This is an amazing thing. You would think that she's nowhere worthy enough. She's not, I mean, here, she, she's committed adultery. David's committed murder, but yet she finds herself here in the line of Christ. It's a picture of God's grace and God's mercy. So if people tell you there's no grace in the Old Testament, yes, there is. There's lots of grace and mercy in the Old Testament. There, there's, there's a perfect example of it. She doesn't belong in there. Now notice what happened. Nathan tells Bathsheba all about what's taking place. She doesn't know the problem. David has no idea what's going on. Bathsheba has no idea what's going on. And I like this part too. I jotted this down. If you're walking with God, the Lord will bring the people around you to tell you the things you know you need to know when you need to know. It was time for Bathsheba to know this. She had no idea what was going on, but yet the Lord faithfully brings Nathan to tell her what's going on because Nathan knows it's not God's will. Nathan says to Bathsheba, listen, Bathsheba, you need to go talk to David. You need to go talk to him. And that's what she does. Look at verse 15. So Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. And the king said, what is your wish? And she said to him, my lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, assuredly Solomon your son shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne. So now, look, Adoniah has become king, and now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. He sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance, has invited all the sons of the king, Abathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. So you see, Bathsheba goes into the king, into King David, and she basically explains to him what the problem is. The problem is your son, you, you promised me this. You told me, David, that Solomon was going to sit on the throne. You said you told the whole nation that, and, and now the problem is that, that Adonijah has become king, and, and if this continues, he's going to kill us. He's, he's already made himself king. He's having a, a party. He's, having, he's sacrificing animals. He, he's, he's doing it. What, David, do something. As I looked at this, I saw something really cool kind of unfold. We see the basic story, and it's pretty straightforward. But then I began to look at it in a different perspective. And what I found in that little section of Scripture is a prescription for prayer. It's a prescription for prayer. I want you to think of David as a picture of Christ. And look at it this way. In verse 15, she comes into the king's chambers. She comes into the king's quarters. She comes to the place where the king dwells. It's his private place. It's the holy of holies. Not anybody could get into the king's chambers, could they? How could she get into the king's chambers? She had a relationship with the king. She was his wife. We're the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We don't have to go into the holy of holies anymore. We go into our prayer closets and meet with our king. But we have to be willing to do that. She had to go into the king. She didn't write him a letter. She didn't email him or Facebook him or tweet him or Instagram. She, she went into where he was. She went to meet with him face to face, person to person. And really it comes down to she had a problem, didn't she? She had a problem and she wants help with it. She wants to know what to do. She's got this problem. So she goes and she meets with him. Now look at verse 16. She bows before him and pays him homage. 
She bows before him. She, in other words, she's coming in humility. When you go to meet with the Lord, come in humility. Pay him homage. Worship him. The word homage, it means to honor, to respect, allegiance. She comes with the position of humility before the king. Isn't that the way we're supposed to go before the Lord? Humbling ourselves before God? Humbling ourselves? In verse 17, notice she comes submitted to the king. What does she say? My Lord, my Lord, my Lord. She's submitted. She's got a problem. She's going before the king. But I suggest to you, and I believe, that she was going to accept the king's decision, whatever it was. She had no choice. She was submitted to what the king would lead her to do. When we come before the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be submitted to his decision before we get it. Otherwise, we're just going to him looking for advice. You see, when you go to the Lord Jesus Christ and you go to God from prayer, you say, Lord, I would like to see you do this. I want you to do this in my life. Are you willing to take whatever answer he gives you? Or Lord, what do you want me to do? Are you willing to do what he says that he wants you to do? Or are you, well, I don't know. Why don't you tell me what you want me to do and I'll weigh my, po- my pros and my cons. Why don't you tell me what you want me to do, God, and I'll see if it lines up with my plan in life. Lord, I know you want me to do this, but I, I don't know if I have time for that, God. You know, I've got my other activities going on, my hobbies. I've got to, I don't know if I have time to, to serve at church in that way. I don't, you see, that's how we do it sometimes. I'm going to suggest to you that when you go before the Lord, you need to submit yourself to his decision before you ever know what his decision is. Perhaps if you're not hearing from the Lord in something, you haven't submitted yourself to his decision. And he's may, it may be the very thing, I'm not telling you because you're not going to do it anyways. You see, we need to have a submissive heart when we go before God. God, what do you want me to do? You see, Bathsheba's coming to him with a problem. How many of us have problems? Yeah, you got any problems out there tonight? Yeah, I know you do. We all have problems, don't we? Take him to the Lord. Go meet him where he is. Go, go, go before, pay homage to him. Come in a position of humility. Submit yourself to him with, Lord, I, need, I have this problem. Tell him about it. Notice in verse 17, I like this. She reminds the king of his promise. King, you told me, you said Solomon was going to be next in line. She reminds him of us, king, do you think he, he, do you think he said, I, I know what I said. But he's, she's reminding him of his promise because there's something going on he doesn't know about. Now, God's not that way. God certainly knows his promises and there's nothing going on without he doesn't know about. But how beautiful it is when you go before the Lord and you remind him of his promise. He, I think he loves to hear you re- remind him of his word. I think he loves to hear. When you get a promise of God and you're holding it and you're going in a difficult situation, you can pray that back to God. He likes to hear that. When we come before the Lord, let's remind him of our promises. Make the promises of God your very own. When you study the scriptures, do you have promises of God that you pray on a regular basis? If not, you need to get them. You need to get them. It's what's going to carry you through. It's what's going to push you through. Write them down in a journal. Put them on note cards. Put them someplace where you can find them if you need them. Hold on to them. Grab onto them. She's been holding on to this promise, and now she's coming before the king and says, King, you said. I like this in verse 20. And this is just the relationship part. She tells the king what's going to happen. King, if you don't do something about this now, then then Solomon and I, we're going to end up dead. Now, don't you think David would have known that? He would have known that. But I think it's a picture of the way we meet with the Lord. I think the Lord wants us to tell us, wants us to tell us what we think's going on. I think it's okay for us, Lord, if if you don't do this, then something's going to happen. Lord, if I need you to do, I need you to show me, I need you to speak to me, I need you to guide me, I need you to lead me. Go before the Lord and tell him what you're thinking. That's what she does. Now notice, she comes with a problem, has no solutions. She comes before David, I don't know what to do. 
And then just as she's talking in verse 22, just then while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, here is Nathan the prophet. When he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, O king, have you said, Adonai shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he's gone down today. He sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance. And has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abathar the priest. And look, they're eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonai. But he hasn't invited me. Me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaniah the sons of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And have you not told your servant who would sit on the throne of the Lord my king after him? So Nathan comes in behind Bathsheba and basically confirms everything that Bathsheba is saying. Why would that be necessary? Everybody knows that men don't listen to their wives. Right? How many times in life have you heard the wife say to the man or the husband, hey, listen, I think this thing's going on. I see this thing. I, I watch this thing. And the, and the husband's going, okay, uh-huh, all right. But the minute the guy comes alongside next to him and goes, hey, you need to straighten this out. Oh, yeah, that's my wife just said. And they'll listen to the guy. No, I, I'm making that up. I don't know why she came in behind him. That was part of the plan. That was part of the plan. He, she, this is part of the plan. We're going to use Bathsheba's going in first. I'm gonna, Nathan's going to come in behind her. And, she, and David's going to tell us what to do next. When they came to the king, they didn't have a solution. They had a problem. They had a problem. The problem is somebody else has already appointed themselves king, and that who wasn't supposed to be king, what do we do? And look what King David does. Verse 28. Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king took an oath, and he said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying... Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord the king David live forever. Notice this, David answered her request. He heard her request and he made an answer to it, and the Lord will do the same thing for us. But notice this also, the king made good on his promise. The Lord will make good on his promises to me and you as well. And the last thing, did you see David give glory to God? Did you see it in there? Who has, and the Lord, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress. He's redeemed my life from every distress. He didn't say the Lord who has kept me from every distress. He didn't say the Lord kept me from going through every hard situation. He said he's redeemed me from it. He's delivered me out of it. I've been through it and the Lord has been faithful to deliver me. You see, sometimes as believers, we don't want to go through hard times and I understand that. But we need to get to the realization that, you know what, hard times are going to be upon us. You're going to have difficulty in this life, right? We can all testify to that. If you've, you, know, you don't have to live very long before distress comes upon you at some point. But David is saying and he's reminding us the Lord has redeemed my life from every distress every one of them the lord has been faithful through is what he's saying and he's been through some tough ones he's been through some difficult situations he said the lord has redeemed me for every one of them and then he gives the instructions look at verse 32 king david said call to me zadok the priest nathan the prophet benaniah the son of jehoiada so they came before the king the king also said to them take with you the servants of the lord 
Have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. Take him down to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the horn, say, long live King Solomon. And you shall come up after him. He shall come and sit on my throne. He shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaniah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say too, Say so too, as the Lord has been with my Lord the King, even so may he be with Solomon and may his throne and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So he says, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Ben and I, get all the servants together. I want you to anoint Solomon with oil. I want you to anoint him as king over Israel. And then he says, Put him on my mule. Put him on my mule. That kind of intrigued me a little bit. I saw the word mule and I thought. I'm not a horse person. I know mules aren't horses, but don't all mules kind of look alike? I mean, is there like a fancy mule or, I mean, how, what, what would the king's mule really look like? And then I learned, and, and I didn't know this, you may already know this, but, but, a, but a mule is a cross between a horse and a donkey. Did you guys know that? I'm the only one to know that. Okay. But did you know that it was against the Levitical law to inbreed two different animals? You didn't know that part, see? Because you weren't here when we studied Leviticus 19. So what is that? There weren't many mules in Israel. It was an import. The, Israel, the, the Jewish people weren't inbreeding horses and donkeys, so it was kind of like he had a sports car, I guess. It was something that was, it was, nobody else would have had one. It wasn't something that was common. It was kind of unique. And I thought, all right, that satisfied my curiosity. So he's going on the mule. They're blowing the horn as he goes. Let's see, mules have horns too. It's like a sports car. <laughs> he's blowing the horn. And they're singing, long live, or saying, long live King Solomon. Now, when they came to the king, they had this problem. Adoniah had already appointed himself king. After talking about the problem with the king, after reminding the king of his promises, they received direction from the king. And I thought, man, that is so the Lord. That is such a picture of how we go before God. We come to God with the problem. God, I've got a problem. Sometimes they're small problems. Sometimes they're big problems. Sometimes there's major life-changing problems. And we go before God. And we say, Lord, I've got this problem. Listen, follow what they did. Go before the king in humility. First, you have to go before him in, at all. In humility, submit yourself to his solution. Remind him of his promises. Inform the king of what you think is going to happen. Talk to him openly and wait for his direction. Because here, in this case, they got direction right away. They call the Zadok, call Nathan, call Benaniah, get the servants together, anoint him with oil, put him on, put him on my mule. Let everyone see that he, he's riding the king's mule. What's that tell everybody? That the, that the king's behind this, the king's supporting this. Let everyone see that. But the Lord gives them an answer. Put him on my mule. Listen, when we have these problems in life, follow that little prescription by Bathsheba. I'm going to write it down somewhere because I think it's really good about just going. But first of all, you've got to go before the Lord with it. So often we just, ah, it'll work itself out. Ah, let God, you know, I'm going to let God handle it. No, no, yeah, let God handle it, but go talk to him about it. Get down on your knees. Open your heart to him. Tell him what's going on. Remind him, you said this, God. Your word says this. Promise him. You promised this. Submit yourself to his resolution before you ever receive it. Then you wait on his direction. They got the direction. They got the answer. And look what happens in verse 38. 
So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule, took him to, the, to Gihon, and Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle, anointed Solomon. They blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him. And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with a great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. Notice the difference between Adonai's party, which was a work of the flesh, and God's will unfolding. Do you see the joy written in that? Flutes are playing, rejoicing. The earth seemed to split. It was so joyful. This is God fulfilling his promise. It brings excitement to the people. They're excited because they're watching God's promise unfold before them. They're watching God work in their very presence. They're watching what David said would happen is now it's going to happen. The Lord had said that Solomon would be king. Now it's taking place. But don't forget... Adonai's little party still going on too. Notice what's going on over there. Look at verse 41. Now Adonai and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. Uh-oh. See how loud it was? See how joyful it was? And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, Why is the city in such a noisy uproar? And while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest. And Adonai said to him, Come in. You're a prominent man and bring good news. And Jonathan answered and said to Adonai, No. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent him with Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, they've made him ride on the king's mule. He's going, oh no. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, they've anointed him king at Gihon. And they've gone up from their rejoicing. So the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Also, Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. So do you realize the news that's being brought here? Listen, Adonai, this is bad. They've anointed him king. They've already, he's got Nathan the prophet with him. He's got a priest with him. He's even riding the king's mule. He's now sitting on the king's throne. David's not on the throne anymore. Solomon is. This is bad. And he says, moreover, the king's servants, verse 47, have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, may God make the name of Solomon better than your name and, make, and may his throne be greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. Means the king, David, is acknowledging this. Also the king said thus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. Praise God, I get to see my son taking my throne. So all the guests were with Adonai were afraid. And each one went home. <laughs> Guess that party's over. <laughs> That's kind of done, huh? Did you notice what caused the fear? The things the king said and the things the king did. The king's will. The king always has the final say, doesn't he? The reigning king always has the final say. God's that way. Aren't you glad God's really in control? Aren't you glad that, that, that our future doesn't really depend on the election in November? Aren't you glad that we can rest knowing our faith is not in the government of the United States or the country or any other country for that matter, but our faith lies in the Lord Jesus Christ? And God is still on the throne and he's in control. Listen, Adoniah willfully went against God's will. He knew what God's will was. I believe it was clear to him. It would have been told. Everybody knew it, would have known it. He even got a few people to go along with him. You can make your own plans, you can throw your own party, but unless God, the King of Kings, is involved, unless Jesus is involved, 
your thing's over. It's not going to last long. Your party's going to end just like Adonai's party. It's just, it's just the way it is. The Bible says a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him by the Lord. A man can receive nothing unless it's given to him by God. God had ordained Solomon to be king, and that's the way that it was going to take place. That's it. Look at verse 50. Now Adoniah was afraid of Solomon. So he arose, he went and took hold of the horns of the altar, and it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adoniah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Kind of weird, huh? Why would you take hold of the horns on the altar? There were four horns on the side of the altar. Solomon goes and he grabs a hold of it. It was a common thing back then. If you believed you were innocent, you could hold on to the altar. They wouldn't ever slay somebody that was hanging on to the altar. It was a way of crying out for mercy. Um, he was taking a hold of it. It, they, it was for innocent people to go to. But notice what Solomon does. He says this in verse 52. If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent to, the, to bring him down from the altar, and he came and he fell down before King Solomon. Solomon said to him, go to your house, go on home. Solomon shows mercy against him. Solomon shows mercy. When a new king took the throne, it was common and expected to put anybody that would, that would usurp that authority or, or potentially come against that throne to kill him, to put him to death. But Solomon doesn't do that. He shows mercy to him. But notice what he says. I'm watching you. I'm going to put it in your hands. If you prove to be good, don't worry about a thing. But if, you prove to, if wickedness is found in you, you're going to die. I'm putting your life back in your own hands. What are you going to do with it? But Solomon wanted him to know, I'm keeping an eye on you. That's mercy. He'd already come against him once. He'd already, he'd already risen up against Solomon. But Solomon says, I'm going to give you a second chance. Tonight, we've seen the beautiful model for prayer. Let's go before the Lord. Number one, go before the king. Number two, go in humility. Number three, go already submitted to the king's decision. Number four, remind the king of his promise. Number five, inform the king of your needs and, and what you think might happen. It's part of the relationship. And number, what was that, five? Number six, wait for the king's direction. Wait for him to tell you what to do next. That's the hard part, isn't it? I gotta wait. I gotta wait. Waiting is doing something. It's okay if you're waiting. Waiting is a, think of it as, as, as moving towards something. You're waiting, you're getting closer. But the one thing that I didn't mention tonight, and I think this is rather interesting, you have two guys. One knows he's supposed to be the next king of Israel and wants to take the throne. One exalts himself and prepares for himself the people and the things that he thinks that needs to take the throne. The one that was doing the work himself failed. But do you notice we didn't read a thing that Solomon did in this chapter? We don't read that Solomon was gathering people to himself. We don't read that Solomon was trying to make it happen in his own strength. We don't read that Solomon was doing this and doing that. And Solomon was busy trying to make this all happen. Instead, what do we read about Solomon? Everybody else was doing it for him. And it wasn't because he was lazy. It was that he was letting the Lord exalt him. He was letting the Lord move through him. Adonias sought to exalt himself and he tried to make it happen on his own. And Solomon isn't even listed in the passage except that he's part of what God's already doing. It's important for us to realize we don't need to exalt ourselves. Don't try to make yourself somebody you're not. 
Don't try to make yourself look better. Don't try to make yourself important. Just be who God called you to be. It's okay to say, I messed up. It's okay to say, I'm a sinner. It's okay to say, I need prayer. Will you pray for me? It's okay to say, I need help. I need help. Let God be the one that lifts you up. Because the Bible's rather clear. Those that exalt themselves will be humbled. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather humble myself than have God do it. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we study here tonight, as we reflect on our own life, Lord, may this study be more to us than just a study in 1 Kings and a study about the life of David and Solomon and Adonai. Father, may you have pointed some things out about our life. Maybe we've been exalting ourselves. Maybe we haven't, we've got a problem and we haven't gone before you. Maybe that's something new to us. So Lord, as we take a few minutes in prayer, I just ask that you'd meet us here. Before we close tonight, I just want to spend just two or three minutes, just a few minutes. Just gather up your thoughts about the message. Be willing to go before the Lord and ask the Lord to show you. Is there something in my life that needs to change? Is there something in my life that he's speaking to you on directly? Is there something that he's dealing with you on? So just take two or three minutes and go before the Lord quietly. There's no praying out loud. This is just quiet time before God between you and him.